So there was this time I was invited to visit a prospective donor. We'd been working to nurture him as a prospect. Finally, the meeting. The two of us sat on his magnificent patio overlooking the Hollywood Hills. I remember we were drinking iced tea. My development director was over the moon that he had invited me for iced tea. I think she expected me to arrive back at the office toting several rollerboards of needed cash. Now, I had not spent much, if any, time with this donor and did not anticipate that I would get another crack at building a relationship anytime soon. I was now a pretty seasoned fundraiser, and I could read prospect conversations pretty well. So I went with the plan that if I read, ask me, then I would ask. We chatted, I read the iced tea leaves, and they said, go ahead, ask him. And so I did. But you see, I made a big fat mistake. I told him he should be a donor to our organization. I cringe even saying that. Your job is to ask, their job is to decide if they will or, yikes, if they should. To this donor's enormous credit, he did give, and a check arrived in our offices. It was a very small gift relative to his capacity. I think it was a check that arrived with an important implicit message that I had made a fundraising mistake. As a woman raised Catholic, I spend a lot of time thinking about confession. Clearly, it has stuck with me today. Today, I chat with a neighbor, a friend, and a seasoned development director. It's kind of a tell-all. The names will be changed to ensure anonymity, but we're not planning on changing our own names. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. My guest today is Lori Abrams. Since 2006, Lori Abrams has served as the Director of Development for the Valerie Fund, which provides support for the psychosocial care of children with cancer and blood disorders at seven dedicated outpatient centers in five hospital systems. Prior to the Valerie Fund, she held positions of Associate Campaign Director for the Jewish Federation of Palm Beach County and then Director of the Mandel Center for Excellence in Leadership there, a center for professional and volunteer leadership development. Lori began her career at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government in 1986, and she credits her understanding of gift cultivation and life in general to time spent on a kibbutz milking cows, where her dairy manager taught her, you don't want to take the milk from the cow. You want her to give it to you. Now, as I mentioned, Lori is a personal friend and neighbor. I know her to be a fierce advocate for the Valerie Fund, and I know that while she loves fundraising, she's also a gifted photographer and a wonderful writer. We have laughed quite a lot about fundraising stories in our backyards, and I asked her if she would mind doing that in front of the microphone, and for some reason, she said yes. Hello, Lori. Hello, Joan. So, <laughs> let's begin by ensuring that people who are listening understand the work of the Valerie Fund. 
You've been there since 2006. How many of you out there, raise your hands, how many of you out there would like to have had the same development director for that many years? I guess it depends on who the development director is, isn't it? But in the case of the Valerie Fund, I know how lucky they are. So I know it's not a job for you. Tell us a little bit about what you love, what the Valerie Fund is and what you love about it. There are so many things about the Valerie Fund that I love, and it almost sounds, uh, oh, scripted, but it's not. Um, (laughs) First of all, our mission, uh, most importantly, our mission, and that is so direct. The care is so direct. So for children who are going through treatment for cancer or for blood disorders, life-threatening diseases at very young ages, often, We provide all of the care that is going to help them kind of feel stable emotionally and psychologically while they're on this roller coaster and to always recognize that they are children and that they are normal children who want to have fun, who want to be with their friends, who want to have childhood experiences, and there's no reason they can't. And so the staff that attends to them which consists of child life specialists and social workers and psychologists and educational liaisons, never forget that. But they also need to see that their parents are supported, uh, just as the parents need to see that the children are supported. Because kids right. worry about their parents. You know, they worry, and we worry about ourselves, but then we look at our families and we worry about them. So, so that care is full circle. It's for the whole family. And It's really important work that we do, basically raising the money so that we can allocate it. And, you know, there's nothing we love more than giving the money away. That's what we're here for. I I will add to Joan, because I said there are many things I, I like about it. The other piece is that we have an incredible board, a longstanding executive director. And tonight we'll have a board meeting. And at some point during that board meeting, We'll be making a decision and the question will come up, well, is it good for the kids? And and mm-hmm. then somebody else will say, I think it's good for the kids. And then the board will vote it in because that's how we make our decisions. I love that. I have facilitated board retreats or, you know, board meetings where it's as if the the work is somewhere else, right? Is I did a retreat one time where I made board members come in as clients, that they had to learn about a particular client. They had to introduce themselves to each other as if they were the clients. And then we put those names up on the wall around the room. And like during the retreat, when people started to sort of, I don't know, either be windbags or they started to go off the rails on something, I'd say like, how do you think Ben Well would feel about this conversation right now? Right. Right. Same thing. Right. Is it good for the kids? Love that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So fundraising professional is the path that you've chosen. Now, let's go back to some <laughs> let's go back to some Passover Seder when you were like 10. And there's there's always some relative who works earnestly to get the 10-year-old at the table engaged in the conversation, right? And so this relative says to you, So Lori, what do you want to be when you grow up? So I have a question and a follow-up. What would you have said? And then secondly, If I asked your mom, and I know she lives nearby, about your career path, would it make sense to her or surprise her? 
So first, the aunt has asked you, you're 10 years old, what do you say? Oh, uh, a lion tamer. (laughs) Seriously? Seriously. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's the same reaction I got from my family. (laughs) I thought I'd be really good at it. Uh-huh. I don't know why. Did you did did you have a history with like? Didn't even like just that. Didn't was, even like cats, Joan. Didn't even like cats. Uh, but I was sure I'd be a good lion tamer. I don't know about trainer, but tamer. So thank goodness I didn't go that route. We wouldn't be having this conversation. So you know, <laughs> sometimes when I do, sometimes when I do these virtual keynotes, I ask people what they wanted to be when they grew up. You know, assuming they grew up, and I always said that I wanted to be a good humor driver. Because people are always so happy to see you, right? And and people were all in so all such good moods, or they wanted to be in good moods. And I just loved that. But pretty much any job that people put in the chat, you can actually tie to nonprofit leader in some way. Can you t- can you tie lion tamer to fundraising professional? No, but I could tie <laughs> I could tie milkmaid to fundraising professional. Okay, do that one then. So um, as you mentioned in my little bio, uh, my life philosophy really came from my time spent uh, working in a dairy on a kibbutz where this very, very practiced uh, dairy manager who cared a lot about the cows and really took such good care of the herd, took great pains to teach each new person. And he explained to me that cows are able to give milk when they're comfortable, when they're relaxed, when they trust you. It's about trust. So he said, you don't want to take the milk from the cow. You want her to give it to you. And I, it made sense literally at the time. But when I moved into fundraising, what I learned was that that really is fundraising. You don't want to, you don't want it to be, I'll say, um, you want it to be not transactional. You want it to be transformational. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And tra- transactional is when you're taking. When you're saying, just give it to me now, give it to me now, give it to me now, as opposed to developing a relationship, earning trust. And I do mean earning the trust. And yep. people say, how can I help you? And that is the greatest feeling of all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the second part of my question was, is your mom surprised about the path that you've taken in your professional life? Yes, it was very circuitous. And it was, you know, if you had said to me, here's a list of a hundred professions, uh, or give me the, your list of a hundred professions, my, uh, fundraising probably would have been 215 or something like that. Um, uh-huh. it, was, it was a progression. It wasn't something that I really thought I'd even be good at. But I think for me, and I think for a lot of us who work in nonprofit, when you care about the mission, the ask is simply uh, something you want to do, not something, you know, sort of like milking the cow thing. You, you want to do it. So yeah, it's a, yeah. Um, I think about it as an invitation, right? right? Is that you are, you, Lori, at the Valerie Fund are part of something really swell. And you want to, and, and you know it to be swell, and you, you're there every day, and you see the work, and you see its impact, and you actually want to invite someone else to be a part of it in some way, right? And that, that's actually, when you think about it that way, it's, it's really different from asking. It's, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm at this really great, meaningful party. Would you like to come? 
It's very different. And I think the mistake, I will say that some I've heard among some board members in discussing, you know, new hires and development director searches where they would say, well, are they going to bring a Rolodex of donors with them? Mm. No, no, it doesn't work that way. I mean, sometimes there may be people you happen to know who you think would be interested in a mission, but it's so much about finding people for whom the mission resonates and really exposing them to the good work that you do. And then the ask is, is simply a matter of which thing are you going to ask them for? Or they, or they, you know, ask, which thing do you need me for? And then, you know, maybe there's some negotiation in terms of the amount, right? But, right. Um, you talked, you were just talking about your, uh, about your board. And uh, I've done this exercise with boards where I have them write down on an index card, the one word that comes to their mind when they think about fundraising. And it never, I don't even have to plant the card. I could, <laughs> I could but I never have to plant it. Somebody writes terrifying. Absolutely. Right? These are real grown-ups. <laughs> yeah. Actual well, grown-ups use the word terrifying to describe fundraising. What do you think that's about? I I think that in our society, I can only speak to our society, obviously, but I think in our society, money is such an emotional thing. It carries so yeah. many different emotions, ideas, histories, depending on how the family regarded it. You know, an Israeli once said to me, Israelis will tell you everything about their financial life and nothing about their sex life. The uh, <laughs> Americans will tell you everything about their sex life and nothing about their financial life. And, and so it made me really think that it's true. We're, we're a little bit hung up on money and what it means yeah. to us and what it represents. And I, I, think, I think there's that. I think there's something yeah. in that that answers your question indirectly. Which is, which is actually, you know, I, maybe I'm going to park this question about how you work with your board to get to build a culture of philanthropy, but I promised listeners that we would talk about fundraising mistakes, mm-hmm. and I would be remiss if we did not actually drive there. And, and maybe the good bridge to the mistakes is actually from a positive frame, is to say, to ask you, what do you think it takes to be good as a development director? What do you you think it takes to be good at it? I guess that there's a couple things depending on the organization, right? So if you have staff, if you work with, you know, other fundraisers, then I think to me, it's about collaboration and, and just putting all the best ideas forward and not worrying about ownership. I know that in some fundraising organizations, they make it sort of competitive. And I don't think that bodes well for you know, the universe and, and for the organizations that leads to transactional, not transformational. So um, we don't work that way at all. I think it's very important to be able to look at your list of donors or potential donors and figure out who's the best person to, to manage them. Who's the best person to, I'll say, own that account. If you're in Salesforce and you have account owners, we just, we just uh, moved to Salesforce. Um, Uh And so to me, it's really about keeping an open mind about who's the best person to do that and Uh to make those assignments so that you have the the best chance of success. Uh, That would be the overarching answer I would give you. Yeah. I think I have found, I wonder if you would agree with this, that 
attention to detail is a much more important quality for a development director than most people think that it is. And follow-up, remembering I've got this list of folks that I'm nurturing and I'm stewarding, and when was the last time I talked to them? And, like, there's a lot of moving parts to development that requires a real attention to detail. I, 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 that, that's my point of view. I just wonder if you agree. I couldn't agree more. And stewardship is so important. Staying in touch and understanding what people want, how how much interaction people want. And it's not easy because people are out there in their complicated lives. And sometimes they want to talk to you and sometimes they don't. And you have to have a really thick skin and you have to really know that it's not always about you. As much as that moment is so important (laughs) to you, it's not always that important to the donor. So you try again. And you try again and you try again. And that's just how it is. There's there's no shortcut to that. I agree, Joan, on the attention to detail, which I personally struggle with, anybody will tell you. But one of the things that I see, um, you know, you mentioned writing before, but writing is so important. To me, that level of attention to detail, when you are sending emails, when you are sending any written correspondence, I might go maybe too far in one direction to be so attentive to the details there, but I think it's very important because we have to do so much by email and tone and appropriate choice of language, grammar, all of those things, they make a difference. Well, I actually, uh, I would actually take it a step further and say that people don't really realize that you can build, you can actually build a really good relationship via email. That that's not that doesn't have to be transactional either, and you do it. Uh, you do it because you're a really good writer and you're funny, right? So your emails come across, and people want to read them. I mean, I, I'm doing some fundraising for my alma mater, and so I'm going after, I'm going, sorry, going after. Let me, let me rephrase that. <laughs> so I'm nurturing some prospects that I was it, did theater with, college theater with. And so I found an old picture of this prospect in a production that I was in of applause in college. And I think it may actually be the last time I was actually photographed wearing a dress. And <laughs> I didn't know you were in theater, so that's a whole different. Thing. Uh, um, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and and so I was able to. I you know I texted a picture of that that picture, which I was sure he had not seen, and and started a conversation about that. And then it led to another conversation about, would you like to know more about what we're doing, right? So right, there's right. all kinds of strategies for nurturing a prospect along the way, and some of it can just involve, you don't have to be in person to build a relationship with somebody. No, it, and it's interesting, you know, the pandemic has has actually provided yet another another way to connect. Um, I think that we're going to be in this Zoom thing forever at some level because it's so convenient. So um, while I think sitting across the table from somebody or sitting in somebody's office or whatever is wonderful, a lot of times it's just not possible. But I've gotten on many Zoom calls where I would never have been able to get into that person's office. And it's really, really nice. There's like a level of intimacy that is different and you're very present. 
But the other thing I want to say in terms of, I agree about the email. I think text with donors used at a, you know, obviously you have to kind of know the person. You have to be careful about that. Totally. And you always want to know how, how they want to communicate. It doesn't matter how I want to communicate. It's about how they want to communicate. But what I find um, in, I would say, younger people and not just younger is that people have become fearful of just picking up the phone and calling. And I, my boss and I are both firm believers that you just pick up the phone and call sometimes. And if they can't answer, they can't answer. Then follow up with a email, say, tried to reach you, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, sometimes it's nice because it shows a level of personal uh, care. Yes, I think I I would, I totally agree with that. I think that's actually true with uh, bosses and their staff as well, actually. (laughs) So... So we talk about what's what it takes to be good at it. Let's let's actually talk about what <laughs> what not being good at it looks like or screwing it up. And I want to talk about this part. The reason I want to talk about this is sort of to to give everybody permission to sort of make mistakes and fail forward because this is not a this is not a science, it's an art. And you know, I opened by talking about telling, really telling a prospective donor he should give to the organization. Like I will would never make that mistake again. It was so awful. And so I just wonder, um, I shared, now it's your turn, Lori. <laughs> I, <laughs> tell me, tell me a mistake, or, or, or you can you can categorize the kinds of mistakes. If you have too long a list, we could make it a two-parter <laughs> also, Lori. So I think I think I would I'm gonna categorize into two groups. One is sloppy mistakes of which I've made plenty, very human, sloppy mistakes. And the other is more strategy. So okay, on the sloppy- I'm going to take uh, sloppy mistakes for, for 400. Okay, yeah. Take, so sloppy mistakes are things like, um, I, which I may or may not have done. Maybe I've just heard about it. Um, <laughs> are, you know, this is, this is, I understand this is a completely hypothetical conversation. Absolutely. absolutely. You know, putting a date that doesn't coincide with the day of the week that you articulate. So let's meet on Thursday, the you know 26th, when actually Thursday is the 24th or something, okay. something like that. But there's a save oh, there, yeah. you know, there, so yep. I, one of, one of my many jobs in the past was working front desk in hotels. So my favorite thing was to get a really angry customer. They would always send them to me. Because I, my challenge was turning them around and and making yep. their day better, right? So the first invitation I ever sent out for an, a very important campaign, I I did the wrong date, wrong day thing, and I was paged. I was worked in a big building with a lot of people. I was paged to the phone. I think it was my third week there, <laughs> and, um, with a major major donor. I picked up the phone. He said, is this Lori Abrams? I said, yes. He says, I don't know why I waste my money on this organization and proceeded to tell me the mistake that I made. So I said to him, I was you know, mortified, of course. And I said to him, you're amazing. I, I, you know, I think that I need to run things by you. You're an amazing proofreader. Would you help me? You know, <laughs> Long story oh my gosh. short, we, we did develop a really nice relationship. And fast forward to a few years later when he called one afternoon for about the major, de- to ask me details about the major gifts event later that day. 
And he said, is it black tie? And I said, no, I wasn't going to this one for whatever reason. That was the conversation. He said, okay. The next day, my boss called me in and said, hey, Lore, did you did you take a call from um, from Hank Strauss yesterday? I said, yeah. He goes, did he ask you a question? I said, yeah. He said, what did he ask you? I said, oh, my God, it was black tie. <laughs> <laughs> so he and his wife are the only two people who showed up at Mar-a-Lago not in black tie, had to go home, change and come back anyway. So again, how do you save this? So he was, he was, he was not very happy with everybody there, understandably. So I immediately ordered flowers, sent them to his house. And when I knew they had been delivered, I called and said, Hank, I don't even know what to say. He said, Oh, about last night. Oh, it was so funny, which isn't what my boss told me. So, right. You know, I, I guess the point is it's about, um, yeah, how much how much you have in the bank in terms of uh, relationship, but not. I wouldn't recommend doing that. <clears throat> I think in terms of strategy, it's for me the biggest mistake is probably not asking for enough. And how do you know you're not asking for enough when you ask somebody for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, say, and they go okay, and then inside you're saying, <laughs> oh my. Gosh, how much did I leave on the table? Right. I had a meeting with a person. I didn't know much about their capacity. I knew quite a lot about their capacity, but this was like a first ask. And so I asked this gentleman for $10,000. And he looked at me and he said, what can you do with only $10,000? And I nearly choked on my rigatoni or whatever it was, mm-hmm. right? And And so I told him what I could do with $10,000. And then I said, I clearly did not ask you for a sizable enough uh, gift. Like clearly. And I'm going to take it on as a challenge to educate you about what our organization does. And we have an event in eight weeks, and I'd love for you to come. And I'm going to give some remarks and talk a little bit about more about what we do. And would you be, would you be game to come? He said, yes, I definitely will come. And (laughs) he came and we upgraded him to $25,000 after the remarks. And this is a question that a lot of people get asked. It's sort of, you, you, we're talking about the mistake of not asking for enough. Have you have you ever had somebody, um, you asked them for money and you asked them, and they were flabbergasted that you asked them for so much? Yes. Or, uh, yes. Um, and how does, that, how does that roll? Didn't feel good. To this day, it haunts me, to be honest with you, because it was shortly after I got to the Valerie Fund, there was a donor who gave regularly because a friend of his had been on the board but the friend said, you know, you just send him the letter. He's, he wasn't somebody we could actually get to. So we never okay. really could develop a true relationship with him because he he was, you know, it was about relationships. He had a, a relationship. He wasn't interested in a relationship with me or even my boss, to be honest with you. So we sent him a letter because we were having a special campaign and asked him to make an additional gift. But that didn't fly. He He... It was too much, I think. And he was insulted because he felt he was doing enough. Could mm-hmm. we have, you know. And what, what ha- and what happened to that relationship? He never gave to us again. Mm, and we ouch. were never able to kind of right our wrong. So I, I would say that was a hard one to call. 
But the truth is that we didn't have a relationship. And I think that we probably should have just left it as it was. I was being too greedy. I was being too, I was carrying too much of my previous organization's culture with me as opposed to learning the culture of where I was. And I think that's important too, when if you change organizations to really think about getting the lay of the land and and that culture rather than trying to impose another culture onto it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. But based on based on what you knew, that the gift that you asked for was one that was doable based on what what you what you did know, correct? Financially it was doable, but there was something wrong with either asking for a second gift or the language, something that I will never know. That's why that's why I said it kind of haunts me because you wish even if you don't get it, you just want to know what's the answer. It's like where where where's that other sock or those jeans from 1972 that disappeared in the dryer? You know, it's, it's like it's in that same realm. You'll never know. Mm-hmm. And so that's a strategic mistake about how much to ask for. But it's knowing how much to ask for is a strategy. How you deal with the response, mm-hmm. right, is also is is also a component of success or not success, right? That's which is kind of different, which is different from the no, the event is not black tie kind of mistake. Yeah, yeah, very different, very different. I just think you have to, and I think that it's okay to ask questions. I mean, I think it's about using your intuition to some extent and trying to figure out who the folks are and what they might really be interested in, what might inspire them to stretch a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, I haven't spoken to you since this happened, but we just received our largest gift ever. And it was, it started, oh, let's see. We ended up with about 180% of what they thought they were going to give. And that was because we were able to have a thoughtful conversation face-to-face and really put the needs into context. Um, And over that 45-minute discussion, hour discussion, we learned a lot about the donor um, in just a few things that she said. We're able to make it work to the point where they were so happy. They, I mean, obviously we were happy, but they were so happy. So I guess it's about asking questions and then just listening, right? Yeah. And I, I do believe that for nonprofit so executive directors who are not necessarily, you know, don't have previous experience fundraising, most nonprofit executive directors are big old pleasers. And if you actually understand that it makes people feel really good mm-hmm. to give money to causes that they care about, then in, in, inviting them to feel good is actually a kind of a different kind of framework that totally worked for me when I first started with no fundraising experience. I am... Um, I don't know what category would you put this mistake in, Lori. So I um, am nurturing a multi-million dollar gift. And I get it. Uh, so we secure this multi-million dollar gift, kind of a ga- game-changing gift from someone. And it happens over dinner at this person's house. And the, this person says yes. And so my board meeting is like the following weekend. And I tell the board. And there's big celebration. And then the donor walks it back. 
mm. like in a in a very very significant way. Mm. So is that strategic or a strategic mistake or a sloppy mistake or just an awful one? <laughs> I don't know if it's a mistake. It's so hard to know because was there too much uh, alcohol involved? Because they do say you know alcohol is what the Gatorade of fundraising or something like that. Um, <laughs> no, but sometimes people do. They get excited. They get loose, and then you know they think about it the next day or was it not specific enough? Was it not really him, you know, or was there a misunderstanding? There's so many things it could be, but I'd want to know what it was. Yeah. I'm not sure I ever really learned. And I, my board was, I had a good board at the time and, but it was the lesson in that was make sure you, a gift of that magnitude, you, you want it really solidified before you announce it. Yes, uh, uh, no question about that. So uh, here's another one. What category you put this in? So I'm not sloppy. I'm a very highly attentive to detail person. And my first major donor event, I have a, like a index card in my pocket. And I have names of people and I have amounts. It was a long index card, like oh, almost no. like, a, like a buck slip type thing. I'm afraid we're and I had, going. <laughs> and I had it in my pocket, right? And so I find the people that I'm supposed to, you know, so steward, and they'd been donors before. They were donors, and I had just spoken, and the remarks were very well received. I made my way over to that particular couple, and I realized that one of the members of the couple is staring at my pocket. Oh. And so I, I can't even look down, right? I can't even look down. And so I say, Peter, Jeremy, whatever the heck his name was, right? I said, I think you're reading my pocket, aren't you? <laughs> and he says, I am. And I said, what does my pocket say? And it sa- he says, it says, <laughs> ask Jeremy and Peter for $2,500. <laughs> And I'd been walking around the room with a sign on me, basically, that said, ask Jeremy and Peter for $2,500. Riddle me this, Batwoman. What did Jeremy and Peter do? Well, first of all, I want to say that was a a wardrobe malfunction, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I bet they gave it to you. They did. Yeah, I bet they gave it to you. Yeah, they did. They did. And why did they give it to me? First of all, I, I I was so, I couldn't decide if I was more mortified or I just thought it was just the most hilarious. I just couldn't, hilarious, mortified. They were commingling for me. They thought it was funny. They thought that I was very, except for the fact I folded the card the wrong way, very buttoned up. And they believed that it was time for them to upgrade their gift. And they stayed donors for a long time. And um, and, and that, uh, something like that actually brings you closer. That, you, oh, my goodness. It's, sort of we like, were uh, it's like my story. It, it's just, you know, you got to, I, I guess I've learned in my old age, go toward the problem. Don't run away from it. And the, and the, and the, and the more you hold your head high and go toward it, the better you'll feel, the better the other person will feel, the better the outcome will be. You just got to own it. And we all make mistakes. We're human. It happens. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. 
To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So and this is a, a different category. This is a similar but different category and goes back to your front desk experience. The angry donor. Mm. And the place where you find, for me, and you do, you do events as well, the place where we found the angriest donors were at events and where they were seated. Mm-hmm. And I used to joke, I don't know how, how you deal with events and how people are not happy about their seating. But for me, I gauged the, one of the metrics of success of a gala or a big event was how how many apology notes or phone calls did, <laughs> did I have to make after the event? So do you have a strategy for angry donors that you, like, it probably depends on the situation, but yeah, like, I'll tell you mine after you, yeah, uh, after I, you I share. Mean, um, I, I think the best strategy is just to listen and to hear them out. I, I really let them say everything they want to say, you know, don't, don't try to, and sometimes, so I don't think I have a single strategy, but that that's the most important thing in terms of the events and seating. Well, usually in my experience, the people who are angry are not the largest donors. They're some of the smaller donors because we really make sure the bigger donors have the good seats. So they may, you know, they may just not know that, but there, there are ways to explain that. And that, you know, we used to say if we had, if we could only have a round room with one big circle, everybody would be happy. And sometimes we would acknowledge that. But since we can't, you know, you're all important, that kind of thing. But look, if somebody's paying $50,000 to be in the room, they're going to get a better seat than the $10,000. And $10,000 is nothing to sneeze at. So it's, you know, and you kind of have to tell them the truth. Yeah. So... I've I've answered. So here was my strategy at these events, and when Glad did events, we had two thousand people in New York, and we had about thirty five hundred people in Los Angeles. And again, being at- attentive to detail, I created roadmaps through the ballroom to get to different tables. And I had different maps in my pocket right. to do different <laughs> sides of the room. Right. Uh, yes, if that sounds very OCD, it was. Um, and one of my maps was to the lousy tables. Mm-hmm. Like I just went to the bad tables. Yeah. And the truth is there, so two, there were two stories about this. One is they could not believe I had come to their tables. Mm-hmm. And I almost created lemonade by the virtue of going to the tables because they knew that they had not given enough to get a good table. However, I guess the caveat on this is... Some of these people were long-standing donors to the organization who were giving a, quite a bit of money for them, and they're, they're, they're really good tables. I, and, I, and this may happen as, a, as you're listening to this story, often went to companies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Companies who were paying twenty-five dollars or $50,000 for a table. And I felt really bad about that. And we did make some adjustments in future years, because it really, it didn't feel right to me. And so I think it's not just about how much you give and you're, you know, th- yeah. that there are other 
there really are other factors to consider when you think about where to seat people and why somebody is, has, does that person really have a legitimate reason to be angry? It's not just about how much money they give. It's about what's the motivation for the person who's sitting at the front table and what's my motivation been? Because I've been giving for 15, 20 years to this organization. That's a really important point, Joan. I'm glad you brought that. That's a really important point because it's really about not the cost of the table, but about who's at the table. And and, right. and I didn't say that before, but you're absolutely right. Because a lot of times companies will spend a lot of money on a table and send people who aren't going to, they didn't really have skin in the game, right? So it, it, it you're absolutely right. I think that's a good point. And we we also try to get to all the tables, you know, kind of like it's a bar mitzvah or a wedding. You know, you want to you, you bring the mountain to Muhammad, you know, because that's just... That's why we're there, so that we can finally be in the same room with people. And yep. and I, I, I have, I've done podcasts about special events before. Another attention to detail thing that we instituted at GLAD is that board members had assignments. Mm-hmm. That if I, right, that at check-in, your board member has X number of tables, table number, person, how long they've been giving. And all they do is go over and say yeah. thank you. And board members are really looking to have a role at these kinds of events. And it is also a way to sort of spread out and be able to really um, hit all the tables and to be able to also just recognize and honor and thank and appreciate donors at all levels. So, you know, the, this notion of, right, what's the, there's a path here. You know, you identify a prospect, you nurture them, you steward them. You invite them to be a donor. They say yes. And then there's an appreciation component to that, too. And you can't leave that out because um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big piece of the puzzle. So you clearly don't make as many mistakes as you have successes, Lori. Would that be true? <laughs> you don't talk about those. You know, I, I'm, I'm really lucky in that I have, a very, I have a very bad memory, and I'm really good at forgetting <laughs> the the bad things. Um, I forget the good things too, but that's self-preservation. I think they call that self-preservation. I, I believe they do. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I do. I think that's what yeah. they call it. Yes. Yeah. Well, see, unless you, uh, unless you are like me and you actually write a book and you put all the mistakes down in the book, then they just stay with you forever. You just <laughs> never forget them. And then you can tell them over and over again and hear yourself say that. I really said that? I really did that? So... Um, but I, I think I want to close out just by um, going back to and away from the um, oys, the oys of fundraising mm-hmm. to the joys of fundraising. <laughs> I love um, that. <laughs> and give us one other story from your bag of, you have many of them, of, you know, the gift that is fundraising and how you've seen it come to life with someone that you've asked for money. Something that reminds you that, that right? I mean, you've been a, you've been at that organization a long time. You've been a fundraising professional for a long time, yeah. Yeah. right? A story that really fuels you, that reminds you why why you do what you do. I would say that I I can think of one from my past, from before the Valerie Fund, which was the first time I had to ask for the first time I asked for. Um, a major gift, which I think was either thirty-six or fifty thousand dollars, something like that, and mm-hmm. I was really, really nervous, super nervous. And when, uh, but I knew the donor well, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that the, the money was there, that that wasn't really the issue, but still putting them both in the same, you know, putting it all in the same <laughs> sentence was, and I'd had plenty of training. So I, I managed to, to, to get it out. And he was a super nice guy. And he said, you know, you speak about this with so much enthusiasm that I'm in and, and thank you so much. He literally said, thank you for giving me this opportunity. And that carried me really far in terms of confidence and going to other people because it said, oh, people really do like to give, you know, they really like to give. And so it it made a huge impact on my ability to go forward and to ask other people for, for money, which I don't really think of it as asking for money. I think of it as giving people fueling programs giving people an opportunity to express their values. And I, and I really do. Oh, I love that. that to me, it's I love really, that. you know, because I know that somebody who's making a $50 gift, it can be a lot harder and, and as meaningful as somebody who's making a million dollar gift. You know, it's not really about the money. It's about what are you able to do and make something possible that's outside of yourself. I alluded to our big gift that we recently got. And that was, it was something that I will say came to, the opportunity came to us. And then we were able to, we were able to cultivate on a very swift and in a very swift way. Uh um, And, and finally get a gift that was so much bigger than what they came in thinking. And again, it was because we presented what the need was and what it was going to make possible. And it had to do with child life, uh, naming a child life specialist at one of our centers. Mm-hmm. They wanted they wanted a naming opportunity. They wanted something, as the donor said, and it really touched me. It wasn't that he wanted his name out there for the world to see because to beat his chest. He said, we want some evidence that we were here on this earth. Mm. And he was just about to turn 90. And I thought, wow. this is a really different kind of statement. This isn't, you know what I mean? It was, yeah. it was heartfelt. And I felt that we had to really give them something that was going to honor that. And together, you know, we came together around this position and this naming opportunity. And it just was so meaningful for all of us sitting around that yeah. table. I kind of wanted to cry, you know, <laughs> I really did. Um, I I love that. I I don't think I don't really think that I have ever thought about a naming opportunity in that fashion. Right? I mean, I we have given we have given so we gave to our synagogue so that our names would appear on this particular plaque because we wanted people coming into the synagogue to know that there were LGBT families at the synagogue. So, it wasn't about beating our chest, it was about Sending a message to people who saw the name, the Leading list of away, names. Yeah, yeah, and it's very interesting to think about that. Is I think far too often we just we make an assumption that naming opportunities are are sort of ego driven, and this is lovely. That's a really lovely story. That is all we have time for. But you know, m- you know, if you come up with other mistakes, <laughs> <laughs> I hope I won't. I'm sure I will. Yeah, I'll see and, you tomorrow. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and if you make any other mistakes, I'm at Joan at JoanGary.com. <laughs> um, but Lori, thanks a lot for um, for joining us, and I appreciate the work that you do. 
as well as your friendship. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This was fun. I was worried we were just going to laugh all the way through, but we actually got to some serious stuff. So thank you. Thanks for doing your work, Joan. You're very welcome. And I, I think the moral there's a moral of the story here, which is there's lemonade in lemons, right? And, you know, you're going, it's an art, not a science. You're going to make mistakes. But the opportunity to, right? I mean, think about what Lori just said, right? I want there to be evidence I was here. Holy smokes. So um, remember, every time you're asking, you're actually really inviting people to be part of something that really is quite a lot bigger than themselves. So uh, with that, I, again, as always, thank you for what you do, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful, too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.